A few years ago, a guy said, I think, therefore I am. And uh, great philosophy, it's truth. And uh, this morning, that's what we're going to be thinking about, is thinking. And how does our thinking impact our life? And one of the things I can tell you is I can tell what you believe what, you're, what, what you believe by your behavior, and I can trace your behavior back to what you think. For instance, if we were to open up your checkbooks today, I could tell what you think and what you value. I can tell what your behavior is by what you think and how you do different things. And so this morning, we're going to be thinking about that idea of thinking and how thinking is linked to our behavior. And for us here in Paul in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is delving into our thinking. And he's saying to us, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And for us to imitate Paul and to imitate Christ is to transform our thinking. That when we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes residence with inside of us. And one of the things, one of the main things that the work of the Holy Spirit is doing is it's changing our thinking. So therefore we see different, our appetites are different. Things about our life begin to change because of the Holy Spirit. And that begins with our thinking. Even Paul tells us in a couple other places, is therefore so that you may have the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ, and so that your life would be transformed. And this morning, as we think about our thinking in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be balanced between two things. One, God's way of thinking and our way of thinking. And all of us would say it's not easy for us to think like God, but that's what Paul asks of us and requires of us is to say that whenever you say yes to Jesus, your appetites and your mind and your heart begin to change and you begin to live differently, not behavior modification, but that your heart is transformed and your mind is transformed. Therefore, you pursue different things. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, there may be one down there. Or some of you have these newfangled things called iPhones and Android phones. And there's version and all kind of that. You can have that in front of you. So here Paul is giving us the balance of scales between God's way of thinking and our way of thinking. And he's just finished up in Philippians chapter 1 saying, hey, we should have our eyes focused as citizens of heaven. And so that's kind of our, our focus coming out of that. And he's saying, when he says you in these passages, it's a, not just a you to us individually, but it's a you in community. Because transformation happens individually, but also it happens best and will stick through community. So if you have your Bibles, here's what it says. If there is any encouragement from belonging to Christ. Now, this very first thing is that there's a conditional statement that Paul is giving us. He's saying if, and then a little bit later he's going to say then. If this is true, then this will happen. And so this word if, conditionally, and then he gives us this crazy good word called encouragement. Now, when we think of the word encouragement, we think of, you know, patting someone on the back and saying, hey, good job, that was great, that's awesome, and kind of helping them, you know, just kind of feel good about themselves. But the language of which Paul is using, that word encouragement literally means to give courage to. That whenever you speak to someone to encourage them, you're not just patting them on the back, you're giving them courage, lifting them up, propping them up to do the thing that's necessary. So here Paul is telling us then, if there is any encouragement, if you should have the courage from belonging to Christ, that's where our courage comes from. That's where our confidence comes from. It's not from us, but it's from the encouragement that we get from knowing Christ and growing to be like him and the transformation that happens in our heart, mind, and soul. And so therefore, Paul says, if there's any courage from you belonging to Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship together, and again, that word fellowship is that koinonia, deeper fellowship that's even beyond blood fellowship, 
fellowship together in the Spirit are if your hearts are tender and compassionate. So here Paul is drawing a distinction. He's saying, listen, if this is what the Christian community looks like, the way that that can happen is that you've received courage from belonging in Christ. And that comes from a different way of thinking. That for a body of people to come together from all different races, all different tongues, all different tribes, from all different experiences, to come together with one single purpose, that is almost impossible to do, is it not? And Paul says that that the only way that that can happen on this side of heaven is within the context of a Christian community church that is in pursuit of Jesus and that has been given courage because of their position with Christ, that it's not about us anymore, but it's about him. And so Paul says there's God's way of thinking and our way of thinking. And so the next couple of verses, Paul says, this is the ideal thing, but I want to show you how that can possibly happen and help us see some illustrations. So the next verse, he begins to kind of show us what our thinking looks like. Then make me truly happy by wholeheartedly agreeing with each other, that loving one another, working together, and uh, working together with one mind, all of this comes from that if-then statement. And then the next verse, in verse uh, 3, here's our human way of thinking. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of, your, of yourself or others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So there are several words that I want to point out to you in that passage. The first one is that word selfish, or some of your translations will say selfish ambition. And it's this idea that we pursue an office or we pursue a position in life that gives us authority and therefore getting into that position, we will do anything we can possibly do to get into that position of authority so that we can therefore benefit ourselves. So here Paul tells us is our our humanness, we have a tendency to have a selfish ambition. In other words, we will climb the ladder, we will do whatever we possibly need to do so that we can get to a position of authority in life. That may be money, that may be job, that may be whatever it is. We use others, we use stuff to get to a place so that it will be for our benefit. Right? And so Paul says that is what selfish ambition is. The second part of that is he says don't try to impress other people. Now this idea of impress other people is the word vain conceit or fake glory, a glory that is not true. And so here Paul is telling us is that it's this idea of a hologram. You've seen a hologram where there's a, there's a person there, but there's no substance. And that Paul is telling us is that if we pursue selfish ambition with the idea of impressing other people, basically we are putting ourselves up and people are applauding us, but there's not any substance to us. That we are, for a moment, we will do anything we can possibly do. We throw character out of the way. We'll do whatever we can possibly do to get fame for a little bit, for our own ambition, for our own power, our own authority in that moment. But that is vain conceit and a false glory. And it's so that we can achieve uh, what we want for ourselves. And it's just no substance to us. And he follows that up with a little bit more. He kind of digs that hole a little bit deeper for us. And he says, don't have selfish ambition. Don't try to be impressive of other people's of, of weighing them down, but to humble yourself. That word humble is to literally to, to put yourself in the right perspective. That as you weigh out who you are and your worth and your value, that you give yourself right value and right worth. 
One of the things that we have a tendency to do is that when we try to impress other people, we begin to change the narrative. We begin to change the story about who we are and our character and how we've gotten to different places. So you've seen it, right? I mean, maybe you've even done it, where you catch a catfish, and a catfish starts out here, and all of a sudden, as you continue to tell the story, the catfish gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because naturally, we have selfish ambition. We want to be known as the best catfisher there is. I know that's not a word, okay? We want people to think of us and go, look, I, look at me. I can do this. And so there's that natural tendency. Why? That this little catfish that we took a picture of that's in our back pocket that we will not show anyone because that would then change the narrative. And here what Paul says, we do this all of the time. We do things to see how we can be impressive to other people because we for a moment want people's applause. And so we will change the narrative, we will tell the story, we will do anything we can possibly do so that people will raise us up. And so in humility, what we have a tendency to do, the opposite of humility is we see the scales and we see ourselves here and we see someone else here. And if we believe for some reason that they, maybe they're smarter, maybe they have more money, maybe they have whatever. And so the scales begin to tip in their balance and not in our balance. What do we naturally do? We begin to tear away at their character and who they are. We want to change the narrative so that the story isn't that my catfish is smaller than their catfish, but that my catfish is bigger and that I caught it with less weight line. And so you begin to tell us different stuff. Why? Because we pursue something other than humility. We pursue ourselves and us being elevated. And so to do that, we begin to talk about other people so that the scales will be when people see us and the other person, we're here. Because we've got to push other people down to raise ourselves up. So Paul is saying that is human thinking. That's our natural thinking. Is that we pursue opportunities to raise ourselves up. We pursue opportunities for others to applaud us. We pursue opportunities for ourselves. And we realize that we're not better. There's always someone smarter. There's always someone better at something. And so we have to change the scale so that it will... People will give us applause. And here what even Paul tells us is that that is vain conceit. That is vain glory. And that if we're about seeking applause of men, that will go away. Even Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 and following, he says, Listen, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it is to all be for the glory of God. Now, interesting thing, that word glory of God is a word called doxa, D-O-X-A in, in transliterated. And that word in the previous passage that was vain glory or selfish ambition, that kind of stuff, was kenadoxa, which is a false glory. And so then in our natural thinking, our desire is to raise ourselves up so that we receive glory for people temporarily and that we will do anything we can possibly do to receive that glory. I've seen your Facebook and your Instagrams. We do it. We filter it. And what God is here, Paul is telling us is, you will do whatever you need, but I do it. We should, as followers of Jesus, our transformed thinking is, the things that we do are not about our glory, but for his glory. Why? Okay, because it's going to offend some people. It's going to offend, but as we're pursuing his glory, we're not to pursue offending the Jews or the Gentiles or even the church of God. And the next part of, of uh, Corinthians says, I too, Paul, try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, that's difficult, isn't it? But that is customer service. 
As you get to know people, you pursue. And if you've waited on somebody long enough, I've waited tables. Whenever so-and-so came in, I knew what they wanted to drink and what they had. And I would go over the top to serve them because I had a personal relationship with them. And Paul is saying the same thing. Is that as we serve people and we get to know them, I will do whatever I can possibly do to meet their needs because I love them and I care for them. And I want is best for them. I don't want just what is best for me. Now listen, as a waiter, I wanted a good tip. Let's not lie. But I do what's best for others. Why? So they might be saved. That's our agenda. That changes our thinking. We then begin to walk alongside people in a way that we can serve them. We begin to meet their needs and not worry about our needs and our agenda because it's about them so that one might be saved. So as you say, I too then try to please everyone and everything that I do. And I just don't want to do what's best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. The next part of this, he tells us, we talked about it last week. And you should imitate me. This is Paul. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this is the deal. For us, to change our thinking is that people are imitating us because as we've talked about, we... You are a rabbi. If you proclaim the name of Jesus, you are a rabbi. You are a student. You're a disciple of Jesus. And that when you proclaim the name of Jesus, people are watching you and how you live and walk and talk, and you are an image bearer of Christ. And so that moment that you say yes to Jesus, you then sit at his feet and begin to learn his stories, begin to learn how he loves, how he cares, how he thinks, how he does his stuff. So that as you go about and proclaim the name of Jesus, people go, ooh, I want what you've got, and what you've got is Jesus. And Paul is saying to us, whenever we come to say yes to Jesus, our thinking, our natural thinking is all about us and our way and our agenda and our purpose. But when we say yes to Jesus, this transformation begins to happen. We begin to sit at his feet and begin to imitate him. We then begin to see that our agenda and our purpose is to serve other people and to literally be by their side and be at their beck and call so that they might say yes to the Jesus that we know. So therefore, the things that we're seeking is not our vain glory, our temporary vain conceit, but his glory. That's a change in thinking. It's not about me. It's about everyone else. So what does Paul tell us in the second part of of Philippians chapter 2? He's given us this idea of, hey, here is God's thinking. Here's our thinking. And the opposite of our thinking is God's thinking. And he kind of hinges it all in this passage in uh, Philippians chapter 2. And it says this, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So here's our thinking. And Paul wants to get us over to God's thinking. And how does he do that? He hinges it on the attitude that Jesus had. And so he's about to tell us we're moving from our thinking and we're about to move to God's thinking. He's about to tell us what Jesus is thinking, what God-like thinking looks like. So what does Jesus' thinking look like? Because remember, therefore I think, therefore I behave and I do. And so we're about to see what Jesus did and shows us his thinking. The next passage, verse 7. Though he was God, now some of your um, passages will say, though he came in the form of God. And so that word form is the word morph, and we get metamorphosis from that. And morph is a form that does not change. Okay, so meta is change, a form that changes. Here Paul says, Jesus came in the form, an unchanged form of God. And so the God of heaven, Jesus, came in earth 
and physical being in the same form. So the guy that you saw walking as the person of Jesus was also God in heaven. And so he came in that form. Now, Paul could have used two words here. He could have used morph or he could have used schema. Now, schema is a form that's constantly changing. So you are constantly changing. So you have a morph thing because you are, when I was born, I was born as Chris and I was born as a boy and a human. That does not change. I know the world is discussing that, but it doesn't. So we are, I am Chris. I was, that was my name, given name, I've told, and I'm a boy, right? And at that moment when I'm born, I'm called a what? Baby. Good. Thanks. Y'all are awesome. And then you go from baby to toddler to adolescent. I mean, you see the deal? And so that's your schema. Your schema is constantly changing, but your form is I am always Chris. I will eventually not be Chris anymore, and my form will be a different form. But here Paul says Jesus in form as God came in here. And so, yes, we see the schema of him different, but he is essentially, he is God. Okay, that makes sense? Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Now again, some of your scripture will say snatched or robbed or taken from. And so here, Paul is telling us is that Jesus came in the form of God, and as coming God, he had the rights and privileges and authority to receive all the glory that he wanted to receive. That at the moment that he was born, he could have said, I'm here, come on. I want you to know who I am and why I'm here, and you could bow down to me now. That's naturally what we think of. When someone becomes king, when someone gets into power, what do they do? They draw attention to themselves. They find opportunities to benefit themselves. And so here Paul is showing the clear distinction between human thinking and God thinking is God had the right to claim everything for himself, but instead he came upside down thinking, and though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to the things that others would cling to or literally rob from the Father. He had rights as God, but he surrendered them for us. So this upside down thinking, the next verse. So though he was God, he surrendered those things. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Now that gave up is this thing that some of you have done. You take a picture and you pour it out. You literally empty it so that you're kind of getting all of it out. And that's what this image here of Paul is saying. Listen, he had the right to proclaim all these things, to rob, to hold on to them, to cling to them. But instead, he emptied them out and cleaned it out. He gave up his divine privileges. Why? Because he could become a humble person to the position of a slave and being born a human being. So Paul is, again, drawing distinctions for us, and he's saying, hey, listen, Jesus came in the form of himself in human flesh, and so that's low enough for God, right? He came in human flesh, and he's walked in our shoes and all that stuff, but he's saying we, God even went a little bit further, and he became the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of all humanity, and that is a slave. Why? Because he was humble. In other words, think about this. God knew before even Adam and Eve made their mistake that this was going to happen. And so when someone said, hey, God, whenever Adam and Eve make this mistake, God, they asked the question, God, what's going to happen? And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit said, here's the plan. So even before Adam and Eve made the mistake, they knew the plan. They knew what was going to happen. And God the Father said, God the Son is going to indwell. He's going to incarnate human flesh at just the right time, and he will be humble to the point of putting himself on the cross and being considered a slave. 
Now, I know everyone else is going to want to think that we're going to come and everybody's going to applaud us, but we're actually going to become the lowest of the low and be, be obedient even to the point of death. And the cross was not something that was a, a cool thing. It was a place of shame. And so here Paul is telling us that from the beginning of time, even before time, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were there together and saying, we know the plan and we're going to follow it out in Jesus in human flesh, submitted, humbled it. He took the scales. And where normal people would raise the scales up so that they would be better than other people, Jesus took the scales and he looked at us and he said, you are worth me coming down here so that you can know my Father. Jesus did his thinking and his living upside down. He took the humble position of a slave, the lowest position. If you're a slave, you have no rights, you have no privileges, you're told where to go, when to go. Your very life is in the hands of your owner. And Jesus came as a slave and said, I am owned by God the Father and I will be humble even to the point of death. Here in just a second, we'll find that out. Next verse. You know, so we see the generosity of God here, okay? So this is one of Paul's favorite passages. Most of us understand what it means to be rich and be poor. How many of you think you're rich? Okay, awesome. That's great. One person. See me after the service, okay? Those of you that are poor, you think you're poor, right? Most of us think we're poor. And, and we, if you truly understand where we're at in American history and, and in world history, none of us are poor. Now, I know we have American standards. But here Paul draws on that distinction. He says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've said yes to him, Though he was rich, he gave up all of that wealth, the ability to be in the fellowship with God the Father, and became poor so that in his poverty you might become rich. In other words, he saw the scales, and where the world says, I'm going to fight for my rights, Jesus said, I see the scales, and I'm going to fight for your rights. And I'm going to make myself poor so that you might be rich. So that when the judge says, is this person guilty or not guilty? Jesus steps in our place and says, you are not guilty. You find richness and value in that. So Paul continues on with this idea of what it means in the next part of Philippians chapter 2. When he appeared in human form, again, Paul is acknowledging the truth. Jesus walked in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Now, again, this idea of obedience to the cross. Now, today, when we see crosses, many of us wear them around our neck. We wear them as statements of fashion. It's got the little bling thing to it. And some people may not even be Christians, but they wear it because it's a cool thing to wear. So it's kind of changed what a cross looks like. In those days, a cross was not worn around your neck. It was a symbol of shame. It was the scandal of the cross. That why would God die on the place that the lowliest of the lowliest die? And so Paul is reminding them that, again, before time, before Adam and Eve and all this stuff, God the Father understood, God the Son understood, and they made a plan. And Jesus fulfilled that plan even to the point of death. And Paul adds the exclamation, death on a cross. For you see, in that moment at the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever Jesus was in that moment and he was struggling with this, he said, Father, if there is any other way, if there's any other way that salvation can come to all of humanity, 
if it could happen any other way than me being on the cross, and not the physical part, but the part of moment where the fellowship between the Father and Son is broken. If there's any other way, let it be. Let it happen. Jesus, 100% human, 100% God's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, God, I know it's the plan. I know it's the plan, but I know what's coming up now. I know what's coming up. We're right there at the precipice. I know what's about to happen. And he says, you are worth it. I didn't come to dominate, but I came to serve. Not my will, but my Father's will. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus, upside down Again, his whole purpose and his whole mission is so that one might be saved. One. One person might be saved. Our natural thinking is, give me some attention. And God says, the opposite of that is to give up all of that for someone else to do that. You know how I know that? Some of you, I've seen you in a Mexican restaurant before. And in the Mexican restaurant, you're struggling with your thinking on, can I drink alcohol or can I not drink an alcohol? And uh, you think that you've settled it until the pastor walks in. <laughs> and listen, I've seen some of your margaritas. Like I've asked if I could build a pool that size in my backyard. And what it tells me in that moment when you see me as the image bearer of God in that moment and you hide it, is that you haven't decided. You haven't truly decided that God's given you the freedom to partake of that. Because I'm not God. But in that moment, the stuff that you're struggling with and thinking about, about that, it, it brings that to the light. And so Paul tells us in another passage that, that one of the things that we're about is that we give up other things so that because they may be good, bad, whatever, indifferent, but we give those other things up so that others will not stumble, so that one person may come to know Christ. Now listen, I wouldn't drink it because of COVID, okay, if you were to offer it to me, but the natural response should be as I walk into this place, and if you're totally clear and clean about it, you should be not hiding it, but you should get another straw for me to drink it, because that's a swimming pool some of you are drinking. So what Paul is telling us is that our thinking has to change. And that's one of the struggles that we struggle with sometimes is there are things that are okay for us. However, as Rabbi Chris, as people are watching me and imitating me, is that going to draw them to Jesus? And what I'm saying to you is, there's things that we struggle with, and I'm just using alcohol because it's quick and easy, that we kind of hang on to, that God would say, you may not need that. As you pursue me and try to imitate me and long for me, and as you sit at my feet, as you sit at the feet of Jesus, you sit at the feet of Paul and begin to imitate your appetites begin to change the things. What happens is your eyesight begins to say, it's not about me and a little bit of fame. And this no substance glory, but it's about his glory. What's the next slide? Therefore, 
You see what happened for Jesus. We're going to see what happened for Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's above all other things. And what happened? All of earth, all of earth, even under earth, proclaim and give him honor. The next part of that says that every tongue and every tribe will confess his name. Wherever they are at, they will confess his name, and he will be lifted up. So the interesting thing about the last, very last verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, is what we see that this thinking is we have our natural way of thinking, and there's God's thinking. And our natural way of thinking is we try to raise ourselves up so we can get applause and we can receive glory. And in God's way of thinking is we actually choose the lowliest of places to serve other people, even moments of slavery where others are telling us to go to and fro so that one may become, may be, uh, may, may be saved. And there's this change in us. And here's the interesting thing in the last part of verse 11. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Not for Jesus' glory. This is the interesting thing. That Jesus, the Son of God, became man and walked in flesh. He understood the calling on his heart from beginning whenever God said, Hey, listen, Adam and Eve are going to mess it up. And there's going to become this moment where we're going to be separated for all of eternity. And, and in that moment, Jesus did that not for his own glory. See, that's the part that sometimes we get confused as we think Jesus did all this for himself. It wasn't even for himself. What does it say? To the glory for the doxa of God the Father. And so what Jesus is saying is, I came and I lived this life in this flesh. I struggled with the temptations. I struggled with all the things that you struggled with. And I did not fail. And then I'm on the cross and I'm weighing, are these people worth it? And he says, yes, that you are worth it. Why? Not for him, but for the glory of God, for the doxa of God the Father. And that that is our calling is that when we get this, that this life, once you say yes to Jesus, you are not your own anymore. You are his. Therefore, your eyesight, your mindsight, everything begins to change. And the things that you thought once were had meaning actually become cheap trinkets. Because you are pursuing one thing, and that is to sit at the feet of the master rabbi and begin to imitate him. And as you begin to imitate him, other people see, man, I want that. And our legacy is this, is that when we are in heaven as followers of Jesus, our legacy hopefully is in that moment of the dash of our life is that other people see us imitating Jesus and they begin to imitate us as we follow Jesus and they become followers of Jesus. And at that moment where every tongue confesses, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In that moment of worship in heaven, when everyone is looking at the slain lamb at the right hand of the Father, they're saying, I am here because you imitated Jesus. Because you quit looking for vain glory for yourself, but chose to serve me and to walk with me and to do my bidding so that one may come to know Jesus, that that is our legacy. That that is the wake of our life, that if we can wake up to that, that every tongue can confess that Jesus is Lord, not for his glory, but for the glory of his Father. That that is us. That what we even do here is not for ourselves, but for an audience of one. That the songs that you sing, the message that we're preaching, I'm not preaching for you, I'm preaching for his glory. And so for us to grasp that. Is that, look, the things that Christ calls us sometimes to walk away from is not for our glory. It's not for our benefit. 
It's not even to modify our behavior so we can clean up. It's for His glory. That's my challenge for us. None of us are perfect. Our way of thinking? God's way of thinking. My way? Lift me up. Because let's be honest. Who doesn't like a pat on the back? Who doesn't like 15 minutes of fame? It's natural. But to understand that more importantly, the best is one day to be around the throne and to look around and to see people that you've done life with here that are in heaven with you singing the glories and praise of Jesus and they can look at you in the eye and say, I am here because I imitated you imitating Jesus. That's our call. Let's pray together. Father, our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our ability. It's not in our our wisdom, our strength, our knowledge, our good looks, our money, our education. Before you, everyone is equal. We confess. Sometimes we try to impress others. We confess. Sometimes we pursue our own ambitions for our own goals and our own needs and wants. It's just how you made us. But Father, you've given us the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us, that allows us to transform our thinking, moments in our thinking, to your thinking. From selfish thinking to selfless thinking. From impressing others to serving others. Pursuing my interests to literally putting our life on the line for others. Father, that as we see others, may we see them with your scale, not ours. Father, so that one, one might be saved. So that one might say yes. In your son's name that we pray. Amen.